0: February 2nd, 1933, was a frosty evening in Le Mans. The city, located in the northwest of France, about two and a half hours southwest of Paris, was still in the throes of winter, and there was a cold bite in the air as Monsieur René Lancelin made his way home. He was coming from his brother-in-law's house, where he had been waiting for his wife and daughter to meet him for dinner. They were late, which was unusual, and while he wasn't exactly worried, he did feel a slight chill of concern. Maybe Madame Lancelin had forgotten something and they had to turn around, he told himself, or maybe his daughter Geneviève had misplaced an accessory, but either way, they should have arrived by now. He picked his way across the city until he arrived at his house, a large three-story building at 6 Rue Brouillet. When he got there, his concern deepened. His family did not appear to be home. The doors were bolted from the inside and, even more strangely, the whole house was almost completely dark. I say almost because there was, in fact, one light burning. A single candle wavered dimly all the way up in the attic room where the two maids lived. Monsieur Lancelin banged on the door. If it was bolted from the inside, he thought, then someone must be there. Even if his wife and daughter had already left, and he had somehow crossed paths with them on his way home, the maids must be inside. But there was no response to his frantic knocking. At last, the anxiety gnawing at the edge of his consciousness took over, and Monsieur Lancelin felt in his gut that something was really and truly wrong. He turned from his sealed front door and ran for the police. Welcome to Psychologia, a scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. Before we return to what Monsieur Lancelin found at 6 Rue Bruyere on that chilly night in 1933, I want to tell you about the two people who lived in his attic. Christine and Leah Papin were born in Le Mans. Christine's birthday was March 8, 1905, and Leah's was September 15, 1911. Their parents, Clémence Deray and Gustave Papin, had a troubled history. According to rumors, Clémence was having an affair with her boss when they met, and she was pregnant with the man's child when she married Gustave in October of 1901. Just five months later, she gave birth to her first daughter, Emilia, who is believed to have been the child of her employer. Gustave believed that the affair was still going on, and he told Clémence that he was taking a job in another city and moving the family away from Le Mans. Clemence, however, told him that she would rather die than leave, and the marriage began to fall apart. It is said that Gustave drank heavily, and possibly even sexually assaulted his daughter, so when Amelia was nine or ten, she was sent to live in the orphanage of a Catholic convent, where she would grow up to become a nun. When Christine was born four years later, she was given to a paternal aunt and uncle to raise. She stayed with them until she was seven, at which time she also went to the Catholic orphanage. Leia had a similar upbringing, living first with a maternal uncle until he died, then going to the same orphanage as her sisters. Christine was described as a hard worker and a good cook, and Leia was seen as quiet and introverted and very obedient. She was said to be less intelligent than Christine, who looked out for her younger sister as they grew up and entered the workforce as maids in their teens. They worked in several households in Le Mans, always trying to be placed together, until 1926, when Christine secured a live-in position at the house of the Lancelin family and was able to get her sister a job not long after. In 1926, the household consisted of three family members, René Lancelin, a retired lawyer, Léonie Lancelin, his wife, and their youngest daughter, Geneviève. They had an older daughter as well, who was married and no longer lived at home. The house was a big, three-storied affair with a maid's chamber on the top floor. Christine, who had always shown great skill in the kitchen, worked as the cook and Leia as the chambermaid. After years of instability and uncertainty, it seemed like the sisters had found a place to settle down, and most importantly, they were together. Throughout their lives, Christine and Leia had never been able to rely on anyone but each other. For each of them, their emotional bond to the other was the most important and constant thing in their world, and this didn't change when they began living with the Lancelot. According to many reports, the family barely spoke to them, often going days without addressing either sister directly, They worked 14-hour shifts and had only a half day off each week. And so, apart from attending Mass every Sunday, the women never left the house, and they seemed to have no interests outside each other. Increasingly, they turned inward, getting their work done and focusing exclusively on one another. Their world narrowed and narrowed until they were the only ones living in it. There is a word in psychology that describes this state of being. Enmeshment. Enmeshment is a condition in which the relationship between two people becomes so intertwined that the boundaries between them are permeable and unclear. Enmeshed people sometimes feel each other's emotions because they literally can no longer tell the difference between their own experiences and those of the person they are bonded to. Enmeshment can also occur in a variety of circumstances, but the setting of the Lancelot household, in which the two maids were all but cut off from the outside world and even the other inhabitants of the house, plus the trauma and abandonment and isolation they had already lived through, was a perfect breeding ground for this condition. In fact, for the Pepin sisters, the enmeshment went far beyond a shared emotional world and became something lethal. A few years into Christine and Leia's time at the Lancelot House, Madame Leonie is said to have developed depression or suffered some other psychological shift. She reportedly began to target the sisters, abusing them verbally when she spoke to them at all, and even physically attacking them. This treatment, layered on top of the already insular world in which the women were living, laid the groundwork for the horror show that Renée Lancelot walked into on that night in 1933. After beating on the door and calling out repeatedly, Monsieur Lancelin ran to the local police station. He told them urgently that something was wrong at his house and that he couldn't find his wife and daughter. He begged them to return home with him and three of them set off to see what the fuss was about. When they got back to six rue Bourrière, the door was still locked and the house was still shrouded in near total blackness. One of the officers climbed over the low wall at the back of the house and slipped in through a rear window. He tried to turn on the lights, but there seemed to be something wrong with the electricity. He opened the front door and let the others in, and they began to hunt for the Lancelot women with flashlights. Suddenly, in the dimness, they came across something on the floor. One of the officers ran to reset the house's fuse, and when the lights came back on, the four men were met with the most gruesome murder scene any of them had ever seen or would see again. There, by the staircase, were the bodies of Leonie and Geneviève Lancelin. Their faces were gone. They had been so badly beaten that in any other setting they would have been unrecognizable but Monsieur Lancelin knew the features and the clothing of his family. On the floor nearby was one of Genevieve's eyes, and further inspection would later reveal that Madame Lancelin's eyes were tucked into the folds of a scarf around her neck. The men were shocked, and in all likelihood they stood frozen for a time, but when they snapped back to the moment, they remembered something crucial. The door had been locked from the inside. They realized that whomever had committed this horrifying crime was still inside the house. Their thoughts flew immediately to the maids. Had they also been brutalized? Where were their bodies? Was there a madman hiding at this very moment in some dark corner of the house, waiting to jump out and attack again or slip off into the night? Carefully, they crept up the stairs toward the room in which the light had been burning all this time. When they got to the door of the Papin sisters' chamber, they found it locked. They knocked, calling out the woman's name, but hearing no sound and no reply. After trying again and again to get in, one of the police officers ran for a locksmith who came quickly and opened the door. There, in the small room, they found Christine and Leah, curled together in their bed. They were alive and naked, and beside them on the floor was a pile of bloody clothing and a hammer clotted with hair. The women confessed immediately, and the story they told gives a small glimpse into the degree to which their tiny world had veered from any semblance of normalcy. According to Christine, who did most of the talking, Madame Leonie and Genevieve had been out shopping that afternoon. When they got home, the lights in the house had gone out. Apparently, Christine had thrown a fuse when she plugged in a faulty iron. The sisters said that Madame Lancelin became enraged at this and began to assault Christine on the first floor landing of the stairs. Suddenly, Christine lunged at Genevieve and, with her bare hands, clawed her eyes out. At this point, Leia joined the fray and jumped on Madame Leonie, gouging at her eyes while Christine egged her on. Christine then ran down to the kitchen and grabbed a knife and a hammer, both of which she brought back upstairs and used to viciously attack the two women. At some point, one of the Papin sisters took a heavy pewter pitcher from its place at the top of the stairs and used it to strike them as well. Experts would later say that the frenzied violence lasted nearly half an hour. All of France was horrified by what the papan sisters had done, and there was a desperate scramble to make sense of the gruesome double homicide. Many believed they were romantically in love with each other and that their nudity when they were found pointed to an incestuous relationship. Everyone could agree that they were, in some way, mentally ill and that they didn't have to look far for a diagnosis. Just a few decades earlier, In 1877, two French psychiatrists, Charles Le and Jean-Pierre Faure, had written a paper describing a disorder that seemed to fit the sisters perfectly. It was called folie à deux, which translates to the madness of two, or double insanity. What Le and Faure laid out would go on to be examined and expanded upon for decades, and the term itself has changed over time. But the diagnosis is always mentioned when Christine and Leia come up. It all goes back to the enmeshment I described earlier. In cases of folie a deux, now known more commonly as shared psychotic disorder or shared psychosis, two or more people become so wrapped up in their own reality, so entangled in one another's experiences and emotions, that they can develop a paranoid view of the outside world. It is believed that most couples who commit murder together have this type of insular relationship, seeing themselves as united against a society that doesn't understand them or is out to get them. Folie a deux is something of a psychological curiosity because there isn't true clarity about when a situation fits the bill. The current Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which does not classify the disorder as its own diagnosis, but rather as a delusion, says that a person cannot be considered delusional if the belief in question is, quote, ordinarily accepted by other members of the person's culture or subculture. This complicates the subject a bit because it's hard to tell exactly when a belief is considered legitimate rather than delusional. Many religious ideologies come to mind. The number of people who have to believe a thing in order for it to be considered acceptable isn't defined by the DSM, but when a big group starts to believe things that are obviously false and may be distressing, but still contrary to cultural norms, they are not considered delusional. Instead, they are labeled as suffering from mass hysteria. And if you're interested in that, you can check out our deep dive in episode 21. Oftentimes, in the case of Folia a however, one of the partners dominates the other, subsuming the secondary partner's thoughts and desires until they are both seeing the world entirely through the eyes of the dominant person. In these cases, the delusional beliefs or hallucinations are passed from one partner to the other, creating the shared psychosis that gives the condition its name. The Papin sisters were the perfect example. They lived almost entirely alone, with very little or no interaction with the outside world. Christine was older than Leia, and, as I said before, was thought to be smarter than Leia. She'd been her guardian and her protector almost from birth, and Leia had hardly ever had a close relationship with another soul. All of this is the perfect recipe for a particular kind of folie à deux, known as folie amposée, in which the dominant person— known as the primary or principal person, forms some delusion during a psychotic episode and then transmits that delusion to the other person or persons, the secondary or secondaries. In theory, the secondary person would never have become deluded without the influence of the dominant and should theoretically be cured if the two of them are separated. The delusional person can then be treated with medication and the world they built together will disappear this is almost exactly what happened with the Papin sisters. After the two women were arrested, they were put in prison and kept apart. Christine couldn't handle being separated from her sister. She became wildly distressed. She acted out constantly. She refused to comply with anything she was asked to do until she was allowed to see Leia. So finally, not knowing what other choice they had, the prison officials let them be together. Christine threw herself on her sister, and some reports say that she tried to unbutton her blouse, begging her, please say yes. This rumored incident led to even more speculation about the true nature of the sister's relationship. In July of 1933, Christine had what appeared to be a psychotic break. She tried to gouge out her own eyes and had to be restrained in a straitjacket. When the episode was over, she made a statement to the magistrate, saying that she had had the same kind of fit on the day of the murders, and that it was the ensuing loss of control that led her to attack the Lancelot women. Three doctors were then appointed to do psychological evaluations on both of the sisters to try to understand their mental health, and all three came to the conclusion that the women were sane and had no pathological disorders. When the case finally came to trial in September of 1933, however, evidence was presented that described a history of mental illness in the Pépin family. Apparently, the women had an uncle who had committed suicide and at least one cousin who was confined to an asylum. Outside the courthouse, throngs of people gathered to catch a glimpse of the drama unfolding, and the police had to be brought in to control them. The Papin sisters, now aged 21 and 27, had become infamous. Up until this point, there had been very little information about the motive of the gruesome crimes or the women involved, and everyone was desperate to understand how two seemingly well-mannered maids had become monsters. As the testimony went on, the strange, violent events of that night in February began to come to light and the mental health of the sisters was brought into question. Even though they'd been deemed sane and competent enough to stand trial, the psychological community debated and debated about the diagnosis for them. After a lot of back and forth, it was decided that the sisters suffered from folie a deux, and medical testimony given by expert witnesses depicted an unusual relationship that fit the bill. Christine was said to be of average intelligence and completely dominant over her sister, while Leia, on the other hand, was described as having such low intelligence and such a lack of sense of self that her personality had all but disappeared into Christine's. According to the experts, the crime was Christine's doing, with Leia acting merely as an extension of her older sister's rage and violence. After this testimony, the jury took only forty minutes to declare the Papin sisters guilty. Because of the evidence given by the doctors, however, their guilt was not considered to have equal weight, and so their punishments were not the same. Christine was sentenced to death by guillotine, although this was later commuted to life in prison, but her little sister Leah was only given a ten-year sentence. Because of her below-average intelligence and clear enmeshment with her sister, the court just did not feel that she was entirely responsible for her behavior. After the sentencing, the women were separated forever. For Christine, whose entire life had been built on loving and protecting Leah, this separation was more than she could handle. She began to swing wildly between bouts of depression and what doctors called madness, finally refusing to eat at all. She eventually had to be transferred from prison to a mental institution, but the psychologists there couldn't help her either. She continued to starve herself until she died on May 18, 1937, barely four years after she had murdered Leonie and Geneviève Lancelin. Life for Lea was much easier. She served just eight years of her tenure sentence and was released from prison in 1941. She moved to the town of Nantes, assumed a fake identity, and began working as, of all things, a maid at a local hotel. What happened to her next, however, remains a mystery. Some people believe that she died in 1982, but a film that came out 18 years later claims otherwise. According to French producer Claude Ventura, he found Leia in a hospice in 2000 when he went looking for clues about the sisters for his film Enquête de Sœur Papin, In Search of the Papin Sisters. The woman he says was Leia had suffered a stroke, which left her partially paralyzed and unable to speak. This woman died in 2001, and we may never know whether or not she was the infamous Leah Papin. It wasn't just the Lancelin family and the Pépin sisters who were deeply impacted by this brutal crime. The intelligentsia of France were thrown into heated debate about the murders, with many stating that they felt the woman had turned to violence because of unfair labour practices and exploitation. They pointed to the 14-hour workdays and the mistreatment at the hands of the Lancelin, particularly Léonie. Some even went so far as to empathize with the sisters and see their act as a stand against social injustice or a rising up of the working class against the French bourgeoisie. Many artists were intrigued by the Papins as well. The famous and infamous playwright and author Jean Genet based his first play, The Maids, which came out in 1947, on the sisters. In it, he paints a dark world of fantasy in which the women seem unable to decipher truth from imagination and plot to kill their mistress while professing their love for her and for each other. In his story, their obsession with one another and with the madam of the household is so all-encompassing that, spoiler alert, it leads the younger sister to commit suicide on stage. Full disclosure, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on this play and have performed the role of the younger sister on two separate productions. It's still one of my favorite works of theater, and it's truly an extraordinary and startling record of two women whose lives would have been entirely forgotten if not for the hideous murders they committed on a cold night in 1933. One of the things that's always drawn me to the story of the Papa women is the psychology we keep returning to. Their isolation and absorption in one another may seem like something that could only have happened in a pre-cellphone, pre-internet age, when connection to the outside world had to happen in person and fantasy could, therefore, take over. But this is actually not the case. In fact, many fascinating stories of shared psychosis have come out just in the last few years. Take the Ericsson twins, identical Swedish sisters who ran off a bus into head-on traffic in the UK in 2008 and were repeatedly hit by cars, refused help from the police, and were finally taken to the hospital for treatment. After being released, one of them went on to stab a good Samaritan who tried to help her to death and jumped off a bridge. They both lived, and questions about the shared delusions that drove them to these actions persist to this day. Another more recent incident was the Trump family road trip in 2016. For reasons still not fully understood, Australian parents Mark and Jacoba went through every financial document in their home, then piled their three adult children into their car and took off on a trek that would cover over a thousand miles and involve stolen cars, amnesia, break-ins, and missing persons reports, before finally ending with all five family members finding their way back home. Nearly three years later, all we really know is that the trip was caused by mounting paranoia among the Trumps who apparently felt that someone was trying to rob or kill them, a shared delusion. The idea of shared delusion seems to me to be both terrifying and comforting. On the one hand, what a relief it must be to feel that there is someone else who sees the world the way you do, no matter how scary it may be. On the other hand, that same reinforcement can become the catalyst for behavior and beliefs you may never have undertaken without the support of a partner. I think this was the case with the Papin sisters. Without Leia to join her, Christine's psychosis may never have advanced as far as it did. And without Christine, Leia Pépin would likely never have committed any crimes at all. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. If you like what we do, please tell people about us any way you can. Follow us on social media at Psychologia Podcast, or visit our website for links to source materials and to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another scientific exploration of the strange and pathological.